Hey, what's up? It's Frick. There was uh, a converted airplane hangar in Venice, Florida. It was owned by Ringling Brothers Circus, and it was used as their winter quarters to create new shows every year. And um, and also, they, they, the shows opened there. They premiered their whatever their brand new show was. In the off-season, the building would be taken over by Clown College. I attended in 1986. The dean of Clown College at that time was Steve Smith, and he had a staff of, I guess, basically everyone were also alumnus of Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Clown College. There was a costume shop in the Venice Circus Arena. Uh, if you entered the building through the main door at the front and then walked through the big arena space where the three rings were and the bleachers were seating and then through the portal to the backstage. Off on the right, when you got back there, there was the costume shop. It was a big enough facility that during the, the winter quarters when they were creating new shows, you know, there were people hard at work in there outfitting, you know, 150 people with costumes, sometimes more than one costume. They were being designed and produced on site in many cases. And during Clown College, that was our costume shop. It was it was a classroom to learn how to make costumes and um, design costumes and take care of costumes. And it was a place where we got molds made of our feet so that we could have custom big clown shoes made. And um, there was bolts of fabric everywhere. It was like it was like a fabric warehouse. Um, a lot of things to take inspiration from, and huge tables that the costume designer instructors, who you know were clown college graduates, also people who had a lot of skill in in um, designing and constructing costumes. The costume shop had these big tables that you know that you see in costume shops where uh, things could be designed and fabric could be cut. The patterns could be cut out, and there were uh, dress forms everywhere so that they could um, build up your costume. I think the first thing they did was, um, well, they gave you a tour of everything and showed you some of the machines, because you'd actually be working on your own costume to some extent, learning that. And they made a drawing of you. They watched you they'd watch you in your movement. They'd watch you rehearsing gags and learning in class. And then based on your movement and how your makeup was evolving in makeup class and um, what your character was, they would they would make a drawing of what you would look like costumed. The person who made the drawing of me was Richard Fick. I don't know what year he graduated from Clown College. He's a very gentle person. Um... Very tall and lanky and a little nerdy, you know, like had had glasses, big glasses, and he was like sort of like crazy artist hair and just this lanky body and his sense of humor was was I appreciated it. Um, he was a really nice person to me. I, I found him easy. I felt comfortable around him. I was glad he was the person assigned to design my costume. And before he could get a chance to really design my costume, I, I was looking at all the, the clown shoes that were already in the shop. And there was a pair that already existed. They, they, looked, they were kind of designed 
in an abstract way, like Chuck Taylor um, basketball sneakers, like with a star on the ankle and on the toe. And they had red, uh, they're made out of le- leather and stuffed in the toe to be bigger. They're, they're, they're stuffed with horse hair and shaped in this very comedic round way. I mean, they had, they were works of art. Each clown shoe is made by hand. And it's like a sculpture in a way when you think about the lines and the gesture that the shapes take on to make those exaggerated foot sizes. It's a part of the clowning tradition, you know, to exaggerate and to make grotesque. The leather on these shoes was tanned to be as beautiful circus red and a deep black and silver leather, something that was uncommon, was used on the stars in there. It was so, such a beautiful shoe. I still have these shoes. And when I saw them and I tried them on, they, they, to me, were exactly what I needed to, to, they were like magic slippers. You know, like, I felt I could be funny in these shoes. That, that they were all I needed. I was funny with these shoes on. Everything else would fall into place if I had these shoes. I was, I was immediately convinced of this. There was no doubt in my mind. I just had to have these. And I told Richard, I, I went and talked to Richard about it. I felt compelled to tell him that, like, I needed to have these shoes. They were me. And he said, I think he understood it. He, he said, I normally wouldn't design a whole costume around shoes. I think he just said he would try. And he did. And it was beautiful what he came up with. My, my, my costume meant a lot to me, and I felt it was me, and it helped me be funny. It helped me feel free to be funny. I believed in it, you know. They call your costume an agent suit. It's an old thing. I think maybe it's only from the Ringling Show, but the idea was, like, you had this one perfect costume um, that you always kept immaculate. Maybe you even had kept multiple versions of it on the ready, you know, and you kept it clean and it was you. And you'd wear that if there was an agent in the audience who might see you and um, you wanted to present your best. The agent suit came to be known as the costume that was you, that was uniquely yours, that you made or you had designed for you and that set you apart from all the other performers on stage. That's different than the production costumes. On the Ringling Show, the clowns had to appear in all kinds of numbers throughout the the timeline of the two-hour show. And, and a lot of times, you're just out there in a costume made by um, the costume designer that's more generic, like a lot of clowns would be in the same costume, and it would complement the costume that all the dancers are wearing, and it would be fit in with what all the acrobats are wearing, and it's, a, it's themed on the production number that you're in, like the opening number, or you know the number just before intermission, which was called spec, short for spectacle, you know. So there's production costumes, and there's the agent suit. And my agent suit was based on this pair of shoes. I'll try to put a picture up on the website if you want to get a look at them. I'll find something. I don't know whatever happened to the drawing of me that Richard Fick did, but he made an awesome costume for me, that I can say. And he was an awesome person to me at the time. He was quiet. I mean, I I was a quiet person. And, you know, in some ways, I've always been shy by nature and intimidated 
in new social situations by nature. People don't know that about me now because um, it was such a problem that I had to deliberately create solutions for it. So, so now, you know, when you when you hear me talking to you, I don't sound in any way um, guarded or uncomfortable about it, you know. And when I get in front of a group of people, you know, whether it's at a party or whether it's in front of 10,000 people in a circus arena, um, I do well. I had to invent solutions for that. But at that time, this wasn't all sorted out. And I, and, um, you know, I was in a new group of people. All the students at Clown College were new people in my world. It was the first time I'd lived away from home. And I was in a different state. And I was living, you know, I was in a big arena of the biggest circus in the world. I was at Clown College. situation was a little scary and intimidating in some ways and and I found comfort in Richard above all people I found comfort in the costume shop I spent as much time in there that I possibly could they gave you a couple little projects um to make uh they you know you made something called a a grouch bag which was kind of like a little fanny pack or a secret wallet thing that you had like you could wear under your costume had like a, a weight like a belt to it and it was just a velcroed pouch for putting your money in so you didn't have to leave anything valuable in the dressing room so I made that and then then you'd make some comedic boxer shorts that was another project you'd make a, a skull cap to wear under your wig or to wear as a bald head it was something that you made from a pattern out of jersey you use a special sewing machine called a serger to make that. I remember doing all these things in the costume shop, and it's one of those things that's like you work alone quietly on a sewing machine. You you uh it's a place to, to go inside, you know, and it, it gave me comfort. I felt I was comfortable with it and good at it. The costume shop was the only room in that whole arena that had windows, really. It's the only place you could go and see some sunlight. It was nice. Richard helped me with a few things, and a couple of the other instructors did too. They were very helpful. So I made some things, and I helped to make my own costume. So then, you know, you've that's just one component of Clown College. You go on and, you know, throughout the day, you're going to various classes to learn routines and to learn juggling and to learn other skills like stilt walking, and you're constantly developing this makeup that you'll wear that's uniquely your own also and does coordinate with the costume and we did other things like uh at night we'd go in this one room called the pie car and we would watch cartoons on video or silent films and kind of study the comedic movement of either silent film clowns or of imaginary characters in the warner brothers cartoons like bugs bunny and daffy You know, then you get ready and do this performance and you graduate. And the next time I'd see Richard Fick, the costume designer, would be weeks after graduation when I returned to Venice and um, 
this is, I was hired. I got hired to be on the circus. And you return to Venice to then create a new circus. The rest of the circus shows up and arrives. The whole company's there, the acrobats, the ringmaster, the band, the directors, the choreographers, all the clowns who are currently already on the show. Everyone's there and they show up and they take over the arena. Now it's not Clown College. Now it's Winter Quarters. And Richard was still there. He was um, working for Clown Alley, making costumes, and um, he was around. It was nice that he stayed on, that he was a part of what stayed as all these new people showed up and the situation got amped up. I got moved on to the circus train at that point, where all the other clowns lived. It was parked, you know, just like a short walk away from the arena. I got my room assignment and I had to get situated in there. So we'd be rehearsing during the day and at night I'd go try to get some things for my room, like buy a shelf or, you know, something to hang on the wall, a hook to hang up my coat, you know, like little things. My buddy Doug was building a... Uh, a bunk in his room, so I decided I wanted to do the same thing. So somehow, I don't know how I got all this wood and stuff. I don't know where I got this wood and all this tools. I don't remember. I mean, it's so long ago. It's like 30 years ago, almost. I was trying to build a bunk up in there. I mean, it's crazy what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. And to build into this space, you know, in a, in a train in the tiny little room that we lived in. It's amazing I could do anything in there. And, you know, after a long day of rehearsals, you're tired and you kind of just want to chill out and go to sleep. But I was determined to, like, finish moving in and creating a unique room for myself. And I wanted my room to be twice as roomy in a way. Like, I wanted the sleeping part to be this bunk up in the air and the living part to be this area down below. So I was working hard late into the night in this thing, but what was going on is that I was hammering nails with a hammer and it was getting late. And I was frustrated because I wasn't done. I was frustrated with myself and it wasn't going as I planned. And I had to keep starting things again. And um, I was getting really stressed out that like somebody was going to freak out because it was so late and I was pounding nails. That somebody was going to be trying to sleep or, you know, that people wouldn't like me, basically, is what I was really freaking out about. Um, it was stressful. I was really stressed out, like wanted to finish this thing, but didn't want to anger people. And um, I was really upset. I think I was like on the verge of tears, but I was holding it back. And Richard was, was staying on the train. He didn't want to drive home to his house every night because he had poor night vision. And he was staying on the train too, even though he wasn't one of the road clowns who'd be going out on tour with us. Um, incidentally, I think the way I heard him talk about it with other people, I really felt actually that it wasn't so much that he didn't want to drive at night to go home, but I think it was nostalgia because he had been on the road with the clowns years before and it had been a while. And I, th I think he missed it. And, I, and you know, there is something special, so special um, you are a member of a very small, wonderful club if you've ever lived on a train. And I think he missed that. And he was staying on the train. 
those nights. He was staying on the train that night, and and I think he saw, you know, how close to tears I was, how how much of a meltdown I was having. He must have sensed it, because he came. He asked me how I was doing, you know, and I just told him. I said, "I'm doing okay, but I I just like I'm really." I'm trying to build a bunk, and I'm I'm, I'm worried that people are going to get mad at me because I'm pounding nails, and it's really freaking me out. He really, he made a very kind gesture toward me that night. It may not seem like much. I'm sure to him it seemed like nothing, and it might not seem like much to you, but no one had ever said anything like this to me before. And he just told me, look, don't don't worry about other people's problems. Don't worry about everyone else. You're cool. Just do this. Do whatever you need to do. You know, if 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 I'd stopped and said, "Well, what do you mean? You know, can you explain that to me?" I think he'd say, "Look, no one's going to hate you," or he'd say, "Who cares if anyone hates you? They'll forget about it. You know, they'll only hate you for a little while. And who cares if they do? You know, it's a tough lesson in life, and some people struggle with it. Some people don't, but a lot of people struggle with it. I certainly have struggled with it, and." I think it meant a lot to me, and it means a lot to me today that he said that to me. No one had ever said that to me before. No one ever taught me that. And most importantly, I felt better instantly. I just, I felt so much better. And I thought about it the next day. I thought about it later that night when I was going to bed. I thought about it the next day when I woke up. Like, he's a kind, kind person. He is the nicest person I've ever met. That's how I felt. I really saw something in him that um, like you can only describe it as kindness. And it's funny how instinctively you know those things. Those are things that you, you, you can't go through the evidence of it. You can't say, well, he said this nice thing to me one night on the train, or he drew this nice picture of my costume and helped me make it, or he agreed to base that costume on my clown shoes, you know, or he was quiet so I felt comfortable around him. I mean, you, you can't rifle through the evidence and find the truth of people. The truth of people is the intuition you have about them. It's what you know the first time you met them. And I knew he was a very kind person. And he was very nice. And the word nice used to mean formed with care and perfection. Um, neatly assembled. As intended. That's an old-fashioned use of the word nice and I and I, I'm thinking about it a little bit right now too. I'm thinking about it in the sense of nice meaning like kind, but I'm also I'm also thinking about it in the old fashioned way. I think about Richard all the time. You know, when I look around like the good things in my life, the amazing career I've had, the opportunities to travel all over the world the incredibly generous people I've met and, and and the opportunities they've given me to create things for them and for the world. And the, I think of all these things and I think like, I don't know if I would have gotten all this stuff 
if I didn't get through that first night on the train when Richard helped me and taught me something about the world. It would have gone differently if he wasn't there. Everything would be different. I could never explain this to him, you know. I don't. I. I don't think that if I tried to put it into words and say, "You made a difference in everything in my life because you told me not to worry about banging nails one night." If I tried to explain that to him, it wouldn't make any sense to him at all. You know, I mean, he continued working for the company, and I continued working for the company for a couple of years. He saw a lot of young clowns go through that program and go out on the road, and um. You know, I was just another one. I, 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 I wish I, I'd seen him uh, at a reunion last year, but I, I had to cancel going to the reunion because my sister died. And, you know, I've been thinking about sending him another note, not with so much detail now, but just to wish him the best. And, and here's the thing. Here's the reason why. I'm reading on Facebook that um, he is very ill right now. And that he's in a hospital bed in Florida, fighting for his life. And, you know, I'm having that regret. I'm having that thing of saying, like, couldn't I have found the time to send him a note? Could I do it now? Could I get on an airplane right now and go down there? I don't know if I could even visit him. And I'm pretty sure that he wouldn't even know if I was in the room with him because he's he's out of it right now. But it would be awkward because he doesn't really know me. But, yeah, I could just go there. Just go to the hospital. Sit in the waiting room. I mean, that would be really weird and painful, too, to be that close to him and not see him. I don't know. It's, it's feel compelled to do something. And I'm, I'm afraid he might be gone soon. It's very painful for me. There's this idea, there's only a very small special group of people who become clowns. And I don't know if that's true. You know, and, and, and I think there's a price for thinking it's true or knowing it's true or something. There's this idea that there's an even smaller, more special group of people who ever gets the opportunity to attend the Clown College. It's almost legendary. And I think there's a price for that too, you know. I think, you know, when I was 17 and I applied and I was accepted to the school, I think, um, you know, they tell you, like, you're very special. This is an opportunity. There's only one of you, you know. And, and, and thousands and thousands of people have applied. Only 50 of you will be attending this year. They, that's what they told me. You know, and you graduate, and, and out of our class of 50, you know, there's maybe like 10 who got jobs on the big show. And again, you know, you're really special. It's a small, unique group of people. You know, they tell you that. And a few years back, they closed the Clown College. And there's that idea again, you know, well, now now there's no new clowns going through there. Now that's a finite thing. That's a, a specific number of people 
who went through that, who share that experience from when they opened it in 68 to when they closed it in 97, like 29 years and only about 1,400 people had that experience. And um, that's it. It's just those people. You know, when that when that happened, I thought, you know, well, now I'm really special. It is something to be proud of. It is something to feel good about. But and there's a but. There's a catch. You know, here's the catch. Those guys who went in '68, if they were in their twenties, they're in. I guess they're in their seventies now. And um, they're not, they're they're not all still on the planet and. And now even some of these guys that I know, you know, don't want to say it. So one day we'll all be gone. It's just, just lonely. It's just lonely because, you know, you thought you had this experience that other people would just, other guys would know. They'd understand. You know, my buddy, my roommate at Clown College, Joel, he lives here in Vegas you know, near where I live, and we see each other once in a while. We've been buddies since we were 17. We have that experience. We don't need to talk about it. We don't need to explain it. We know each other. It's defining, you know. And um, I don't want to think about my friends being gone and, and having nobody who understands that. It's just... It's lonely, you know. And I haven't met a lot of other people in my lifetime if any, who I can say were as kind as Richard Fick was to me. I hope his health makes a turn for the better very soon. Hey, it's Frick again. I unfortunately have to add on to this that three days after I recorded this, Richard passed away in the hospital on the night of June 11th. Thank you for your emails. Uh, if I haven't replied to you, I definitely will. My email address is frick at frickandcircus.com. Peace out, sauerkraut.